Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a review. And in this review, we start the Victorian Age Vampire in a series, I should say. Um, and in today's episode, it's going to be the actual main book where we kind of we're going to go over the Victorian Age. I'm going to first acknowledge the fact that I do have other people other than me, and I'm going to say hi to a couple of multiple personalities I have. Um, so, <laughs> hi, Brennan. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, Bob. Always good to be here. DJ, thank you, sir. Hey, everyone. And Mike, of course, always a pleasure. What's happening, bro? And Nick, my, my white self. It pleases me to please you. <laughs> awesome. Any- <laughs> I, I, I was taken aback briefly. All right. But anyway, um, what we got going on here with the Victorian Age Vampire books will be a little different. Um, what we have is you know the typical table of contents that runs through the chapters of what you have. But I want to preface this. This book is pretty much giving you the entire feel of what it is to be in the Victorian Age. Right? It tries to. It does. It, it succeeds in letting you know what it's all about and also gives you seeds as to the development from the Long Night, Dark Ages on to the Victorian Age. And then that jump to modern, obviously, would come at the end of it. Um, but before we get started, I know there's a lovely prelude here that talks about the turning of Adam or Innocence Conquered. Uh, Mike, what's your take on the prelude? I always throw Mike under the bus for these. Um, so the prelude, the prelude is is fun to read, right? It's it's captivating. Um, the the main character or the, the narrator is interesting. Uh, the, the side characters in the story are well developed, but at the end of this prelude, you walk away kind of astonished at the inhumanity of of the guy who who the story is about. Right, because it's like when it opens, he's just chilling, describing the beautiful environments and the people he sees in his day to day life, and then he sees this couple who is kind of what the story focuses on his relationship with this couple, and it just turns towards this extremely callous sociopathic characterization that I still really haven't um, shaken myself from. It's it's a good read. Just don't expect don't expect answers. Hmm. Hmm. Anybody else get the? Can it help Mike out there? Yeah, yeah I'll jump into that one too. Um, so I'm seeing this one away from you, Nick. This is the exact same thing we had happened when we were talking about Rodasin, and he's trying to figure out why like Mika Vikos did what he did to that poor, poor boy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. So we're along the same lines, and essentially, is it's to highlight the fact that this prelude does something very beautiful, which is. And especially paints, you know, what Victorian age for for vampires everywhere should be. It is the the, the catching of an era of where everyone is highlighted um, in this like extreme light. And the extreme light here is this is a, a vampire who's living to live. Uh, this age where there are certain taboos that exist, where there is a black and white, and there's an extreme to it. And this vampire is only like shining in that direction. And it's beautiful for that particular reason alone. There is no source of recompense. There is no rhyme or reason. There's only want and the, the, the getting of that want and just the bystanders are there. So it does focus from a vampire perspective and I thought it was beautiful for that. There's a very weird theme uh, to, the, to the way that it's written. And, and I want to go with, with that because it can, as people have commented in the past, it seems to carry heavy detail into the most inane things um the way that i 
I, I refer to it as is, is Civil War letters. If you ever read the Civil War letters that soldiers wrote when they wrote back home to whoever they were writing to, they had this odd dramaticism to them about the most mundane of details, you know, about uh, the way they'd come across a log today when they were on their march. And, and somehow it, it reminded me of that time we sat on a log next to the pond and I and I think of you, and sometimes the wind does carry your scent. And I, I can only hope I bring uh, the, the proud nature of our families together through this uh, through this bitter crusade against these terrible <laughs> Southerners and, and all this kind of stuff that they do. The whole story of, for this intro is written a lot in that in that motif, which is this long, elaborate, you know, like a heavily, uh, I guess, thematic uh, writing. For me, this story highlights a very important thing about Victorian age, and, and let's let's point out, you know, we have a uh, uh, what is it, the the book Vampire? Oh, uh, that's with a Y. That was written, I think it was Polidori, who might have had it, could be wrong, but I believe it was. Um, Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray is another one that might be fresh in people's minds. Yep. Uh, from recent films, um, think about Jack the Ripper, right in that era, and just how people were hyper focused. It's a time when in London. There are so many people packed on top of each other. Civilizations at such a boom that people are hyper focusing on any detail to escape the mundane. Is where they're at. Lunacy, uh, madness. These are all things that are just being discovered and and put to a scientific bent. And so when you start thinking of how that era might have been, it's like everybody was a writer. You know, you never wanted to make things just simple. You know, if I told you I went to the store to go perform a task, sure. If, if everything's safe and at peace, we wouldn't talk about it because you see me every day. But if I'm away at a war, the last thing I want to do is to write to you about the horror I have to go through every day of that stress. So my mind escapes to anything else that reminds me of home. And then I kind of trip fantastic telling you about that detail. You know, the difference between telling you a story and making you there. And I want to make you there because in my letter that you see it, I hope that you write the same, that you too would want to be here. And so I get to, without you being here, you kind of are. And it's a comforting thing, but it's a little bit insane as well, as you as you point out. But there's a level of imagination that is just booming in this in this era right now that kind of touches across all those things. And just some of those literary references I was throwing out, they do the same thing. I'll warn you, if you're brand new to the concept of Victorian, when you go to read something or a Victorian book, even the reads we're talking about, you're going to note that they do high description. They get very detailed and try, you know, literally make you there is what they're trying to do a lot of the time to elicit these emotions, to paint this picture, to make you appreciate where they're at and where they're coming from to capture that passion. A lot of modern stories that you get, they're to the point with just enough imagination to help you get there. And the difference between the two is whether or not you enjoy that type of writing. And, you know, someone just a quote, because I know someone's going to scream it. Doesn't Lovecraft do the same thing? Yeah, to a almost an exhaustive point it's where he loses you a lot of the time right using way too much talk over the head uh to where the audience may you may lose them trying to do that far but the victorian age seems to be more about emotional that attachment and it kind of it kind of gets you there but to not <laughs> to, to not beat the point is i realize i'm now doing what i said don't do um, we're going to roll on here to chapter one and in chapter one um, they believe the intent as it's called Empire After Nightfall, it's just to update you. This whole chapter is to tell you, okay, what's it look like for the world of the Kindred now that we're in the Victorian era? 
And off the bat, what I could tell you is, if you've ever been to a LARP, I know you've encountered this. You gotta do a night of acknowledgement, and someone somewhere told you you had to know your lineage. You guys ever encountered that? Uh, in LARP, no. I, I never encountered that in LARP. It wasn't until I played a game that you ran and I was not prepared. <laughs> well, so, sorry, if you're going to venture up, you better show up to the table with your lineage in tow. That's correct. Thank you, Nick. Uh, there's, it depends on what clan, right, to the modern. Like, the Tremere might do it, maybe. The Tortor, yeah, absolutely. But they yeah. might do it in a meeting, you know, versus at the city proper. But the Venture surely would do it because they're going to brag about their, you know, their descendants and whatever and who they come from. And what this points out is, no, where that comes from is in the Victorian era, that was everything. The yep. vampiric society was built on these highfalutin details of dramatic importance that established a social hierarchy. You know, generation is more than talked about. They're showing what esteem you come from. It's less about what you did and, and who you're about. And that's, and that's what they're caring about. So it allows the prince to gauge, is this person of worth? without ever having to know all the details you want to tell them. Yeah, it's just because in this era, you're no longer, your empire is no longer ruled by an emperor. It's ruled by a dynasty. And that's what you're demonstrating. Well said. A, a, a sanguine dynasty. And it's interesting about that sanguine dynasty uh, because they established some, some rules, right? The society now says it's the importance of being mortal uh, with the times as a mark of station. So you have to blend in to be noticed by the vampires as a whole. If you can't be human-seeming, then by the time you get to court, you're seen as an animal. Or inhuman. Or not of worth. They don't want you there. And that's because you're ruining what they truly believe. We've gotten away from all the vampiric philosophies that carried you through the Dark Ages and the Long Night. Because we learned to blend in with the mortals is the only tried and true way to truly have this control. This, this idea of owning anything. Uh, in, in a city sense. They even said, we're done with the Prince War. We're not trying to... If I'm the Prince of... If I'm the Prince of Denmark, I'm not trying to be the Prince of New York. I have no interest in throwing a chill down there to watch them become the Prince there and say, I have it. Because all my power is right here in this city. And I will control this city. And my prestige will be based on how big and important my mortals get because I'm working the domain. And that's, that's what it's about. In accordance, because I grow this domain... My permission council appreciates what's going on because they too are growing in power and influence by doing it. And in fact, the entire society appreciates it. However, to oppose the prince and it be found out, that means it's public or made public, it's a great embarrassment for you. Because to oppose the prince is to oppose the society. And the society will snub you. They will shun you. This is where people say, I hate the Camarilla. Why is it this prince a complete jerk? They can say whatever they want and just just crap all over me. And at the end of the night, if I said anything at all to them, it just nobody would help me. Nobody would talk to me. And I just spent the rest of the night in the corner because apparently I was I was shunned. To that I will say, well done, city, well done. Harpy for days. <laughs> exactly. That's what happens. You spoke out when you shouldn't have. No doubt, someone tried to pull you to the side and help you with that. And I know what you're thinking. Well, how would we ever be prepared for that? Where's the story? Where's the podcast about that, Bob? How to prepare at Victorian Society what's going on? Oh, nay, nay. One of the most important things in this Victorian Society at this point is establishing the accounting tradition is all. It's all, it's everything. If you are going to have a, a younger vampire mentor under you, I'm um, steward under you, what's the term? Be a pupil to you. Thus, you're a mentor. 
or if you embrace them, or both, you absolutely know they represent you. They will know everything of how to comport themselves in society, matters of mortal etiquette, style of dress, what events are important, what aren't, how many, how many shoelaces to bring just in case your originals break. All this nonsense, what to say, when not to say it, your lineage, why is it important? You will know everything because you represent them. Now, I've seen this done well. I don't even think they were aware of the Victorian setup, but your classic vampire cities when the players get a hold of these positions, do this on their own. This is where that elitism comes in. Right? If you step forward and you sound like, uh, I, I am a chilled, I, I'm Prince Robert, Robert of, of uh, whatever town I'm, Prince Robert of Sheila. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I rule an area. My name is Robert. I'm Heidi Toddy. However, <laughs> however. The funny part is he went from like this posh accent, like slowly trickling down to like this. He was, was breaking. Like, as breaking as he was breaking character, he was breaking it in the same area. I kept laughing. Anyway, so, so you have the well-to-do prince, but when he announces his chilled, you know, talks like, hey, everybody, I want that. You vampire too? Awesome. My friends are Sabati. Let's go hang out with the Sabin. And, you know, whatever they're going to do. And they throw it out there. Or they're just harebrained or whatever. And no, Brent Tron, I'm not picking on you for the southern accent. I didn't make the trope. The trope's been made, right? I, I don't I don't believe you, but continue. <laughs> Sometimes stereotypes have a, a sliver of truth. Sliver. Yeah, I don't believe that. But the, <laughs> you're the one that says, what, thank God for Mississippi? Don't you dare demonize me. Hey, <laughs> that's about Tennessee educational system. You know what? Fine. Whatever. <laughs> All right, so let's let's save this here a bit, right? We were just talking about the uh, we were just talking about the uh, the uh, high stratification inside the Camarilla at this time, right? And that that I think reflects as vampires often almost always do the mortal society of the time, right? In the Victorian age in England specifically has a lot of high uh, class struggles with a wide divide between the high class and low class, and this is also after Karl Marx. Uh, well, put forth the the principle of communism, right? That that class worker uh, worker struggle. I think that is. Uh, I think this chapter specifically goes through a big, uh, a large effort to show that that does reflect in vampire society as well. I, I think stereotypically with the uh, the Bruja taking the rabble uh, revolutionary approach as well. But I was I I enjoyed that like the the sociological aspect of this a lot there's a there's a lot of references they make to this in uh as far as literature goes because it, it could be argued that victorian age isn't really about the age of victoria as much as it is a literary concept and, and that's a lot of what the the mood and theme they kind of break down at the beginning of this is which is the, you know authors like jules Byrne, mary shelley sherlock holmes Captain Nemo. Uh, these are all these highly stylized, fantastical um, ideas and of this time period that things kind of go in between and out of. The, the reality of the situation is probably more Dickensian than anything else. But... The who? Uh, I don't know what that means. Charles Remember, Tennessee Dickens. educational system. So Charles Dickens, right? Okay. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, so it, it, that's probably more reality of, of the kind of, of situation that we are in, but for more of, uh, 
For this, it, it likes to border on the fantastical. I wouldn't even say border. It likes to be in the fantastical. Uh, that's why you have uh, a lot of occult and pseudoscience and mysticism in here. It's rife with it. It's heavy with it. secret orders, cultists, uh, magicians, wizards, like all kinds of things. It, I think, and it, it, go ahead, sir. I'm sorry to interrupt. It definitely brings up the idea that Bob was talking about, which is the gentlemen versus the savages, right? That's a, that's a clear distinction line that comes here. And, and the kindred society is no different, right? Banish the gangrel to the city limits. That's where they belong as they you know, run around scratching at the dirt. While the rest of us, of course, can comport ourselves with mortals, you know, and influence this high society that we are building. Um, no, nothing to say about these colonials, wherever they are, um, you know, as, as we try to civilize them and show them the great way of the, you know, the British Empire. But for the most part, it, it's, it's this idea that there is hierarchy in the world now. There is the upper crust and everything else. Now, how is that different than, than what you had already with the high clans and the low clans? I think... Uh, I don't think it is that much different, just who's where, right? Now, that's a that's an interesting take. It's not that much different, just who's where. Well, for instance, let's talk about how we reduced it to there's only seven important clans. That's what the Victorian age did. Everyone else is considered, well, we'll just say not appropriate, right? The, yeah. the dawn of the Camarilla made that abundantly clear. If you're not the seven, you're figuring out your place in the world. And good luck to you. Obviously, we have the uh, the Anarch Riffraff um, that now call themselves the Sabbat. And I don't know if they're Riffraff, right? I mean, that's him. Think about the Sabbat now. They don't, for instance, there, there's some differences. Where neonates are grilled in the camera, the neonates are not chained by stifling rules in the Sabbat. The archbishops know they could pretty much kill anybody they've embraced, but they also know the key to any good pack is leaving to their own devices. That's interesting, right? That's according to what this book is saying. That's what I think all the Sabbat books have been saying. That when players agree to play the Sabbat and you're a pack, you better have more than I'm a group of vampires together. Now let's get them. Right? You can't be looking to your bishop and archbishop for constant guidance and direction when you're free to make that for what it is. And that's what's highlighting. Because from this, they talk about how these killers are... They, the Sabbat roam the Forbidden Zones or the, uh, the Outland areas for their kindred. Places that what right to do kindred would never be. And there they kill as they please. They do whatever they choose to do. And it could be around a Camarilla domain. It could be um, in the middle of the city. Except when they transition to the city, they choose to blend in because it's more impactful when they do that horrendous stuff and then have it revealed in this real uptight society that they see being formed. Mm. And that's interesting. And, and no more interesting and direct than when you look at the fact of how they view Ancilla. Ancilla in the Camarilla... They're fighting to be middle managers. They have control of domain. Some of some cities under their lockstep. Everything's going well. And they're looking to the elders saying, see, see how well it can do? Meanwhile, they're turning around bullying the crap out of neonates, knowing that those neonates are trying to clamber up to take what's theirs. Because they want to be those ancilla. There's like no room for that growth. However, in the Sabbat, it's a world of difference. They don't have ancilla. What they have is pack priests that serve as the closest equivalent, as they say. Basically, they're interme intermediaries for the sees, meaning the bishops and the archbishops, and for the newly embraced. They look to the priests 
to explain uh, to those in there. Like, if you're a priest in the pack, your job really is to mentor people having a hard time adjust. You've been identified as someone who is getting it, and you're adjusting well. And your ductus is free to be your ductus, but you should be your brother's keeper, turning around and helping them figure it out. Naturally, the, the position's set up for it, but finally it's in a book where you can read it and understand that that's, that's what they're going for, and that's in here. The other fact is, is the elders are even different. Elders in the camera, we don't need to talk about. Been a bunch of pods, and they're still the same elders that you know and love up to the modern at this point. And <laughs> not much has changed there. And it shouldn't for them, right? <laughs> However, they point out that Sabbat elders have to fight for their positions. That if you're an archbishop, bishop on up, you earned that title, and you earned it by ritual challenge. You earned it by ripping the weak down and establishing yourself, or they just die in what they have to do for the sect to be where they're at. And that's incredibly important, because to the Sabbat, only the strong can be there. And yeah. as much as they rip, roar, and talk about firebranding and get it done and everything else, the sect takes a back seat for any bishop and our bishop who has a territory to allow them to cut their teeth and grow. Because they want them strong, and they know you can't constantly put them in the fire, but there better be activity for what they do, which is based on the pack. Why that focus is because in the Victorian book, they're really not caring about what an anarch is. There's already an entire clan. Brennan already mentioned it. The Bruja are the Anarchs. They're as close as you're going to get. They're already sitting around in, in these, in these uh, bars and restaurants and what have you, having these secret meetings, talking about the hardships of, of industry and things that are booming in this time of technology and moving forward. And they, there should be a better way, a better way for us, a better cause, until they get tired of talking, get mad, and go and do something about it. And that's why they're considered rabble. They're always causing shit. Now, at the end of the day, why are they tolerated? Look at the Victorian prince. What's the Victorian prince, guys? Mithras? Right? Mithras is Methuselah. I don't think he's saying anything specifically. Right. What makes up a Victorian prince? That's what I'm saying. Oh. Thank God for Mississippi. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I tease completely. I'll stop bullying you for a little bit. Um, just a little bit. Now, what I'm saying, Brenton, it's a good distinction, because the only prince we've ever heard about, like, through the dark design up, is always Mithras. Mm. Mithras, 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 man, no, uh, pff, I don't care. Right? That's that's my mentality. He's not the only prince in existence. What you should care about, a Victorian prince, is a gentleman standard for society, or a lady of ambition who rules as well. It's either or. But their decorum dictates what the society is going to reflect. And by them maintaining that decorum, that society defends their status quo. Indeed, yeah. they have to. So much to the point that the prince's word is as good as law. Under the circumstances, that's unheard of. Before, it was not the prince was law. The prince had Lex Talionis as a burden. You remember that? It was like, mm -hmm. written by Cain, we have to do these things. Oh, poor prince. You're like in that, um, like in that <laughs> tale about Gabesia. Right, exactly. But here it says... If the prince decides, hey, tonight we're not going to feed, here, um, let's go to the stables. I'm going to ride a horse. And uh, I'm going to ride a horse out there, and you guys find blood there. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> of, of course. Thank God I brought my riding crop, says the Malkavian as he runs around, right? And what are you going to do? That's what the prince said. And society follows. But this Malkavian has been carrying his riding crop to Elysium for five years, waiting for the opportunity. <laughs> Talking to a horse that has never been. And that's, the, that's an idea. 
But basically, gone is the prince tyrants of the Dark Ages, right? They're, they're gone. And it's because this hyper-focus of the society you cultivate also creates an island territory where the prince is king, as, as unto the same. And the sect supports it as long as civility is maintained. And that domain grows, which is all that matters now. Yep. With that understanding, the clan rules were interesting. The hyper-focus of clans cannot be denied. We already mentioned they point out seven clans. Uh, Nick already mentioned the consanguinous family point. That that's mm. how they see an actual clan. That when you're doing an introduction, we could care less about anything except for your strength being close to Cain, and thus your lineage. And what your clan actually is carries more weight than even that. Why is that, you think? Uh, because it's a caste system. Yeah, they do They do kind of call out. It was one of the little sidebars. Um and it obviously it drew my eye because they gave mechanics and dots, right, for how to explain this, this relationship. But they call out how the Tremere find themselves in the middle, and so do the Gangrel, um, purely based on this this meritocracy and the way they've conducted themselves among the other clans of the Camarilla. Right, the Tremere would have been among the high class, except for some shady deals they got exposed for. And the Gangrel have managed to raise themselves because of their valor and their, their unflinching dedication to the ideals of the Camarilla unto final death. I found that I found that interesting to read. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to read that point, too, because exactly what I read was that the Gangrel were considered animals. Well, they were. I'm not saying that they didn't say that. I'm just saying they're like... Noble animals. They're, yeah, they're so... that dog, that hound at the door. <laughs> Let me explain this, down Mike. A shotgun. Mike, I gotta help you. Someone's gonna point it out. I gotta help you. They say right in here that the gang girls serve to defend the outlands. That they're already out there. Keep the dog out the door. He's gonna bark and bay when danger comes, and he's gonna come run to his master to tell him what's wrong. All right. And as well, long I'm, gonna as... ask, I'm gonna ask a weird question, Mike. What's your favorite clan? Well, that's hard. <laughs> No, 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 no. We ain't ruining the point. You gotta hear this, because they tell you that the Gangrel are accepted so long as they're willing to be servants. So if you're willing to be this protector of the domain, then you can be here. But don't feed. Don't feed here. Go feed out there on our enemies. Also, yep. we may need someone to drive the carriage. We may need some protection going from point <laughs> A to point B. It straight up highlights it. And in this day and yep. age, it's like, you want to be in the city? Well, that's what the Gangrel have to do. There's no... That's what it is. And so you're either loyal to the cam or you're not. But when you get to the Tremere, this is the Tremere's heyday. The Tremere could literally ride the the occult rise, the revolution. Uh, yep. Revolution is not the term. The renaissance period for the occult is what I meant. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that That is here. You know? Yeah. Nick was pointing out what? Wizards. Um, occultism in and of itself. Secret societies are just booming. Yep. everywhere around this time. The Hellfire Club, uh, Aleister Crowley, all this stuff Golden is Dawn, from this yeah. time frame. It, Ouija it, boards. Yeah. You, you name it, it happened <laughs> in this period. This is a, it happened in the literature, it, it happened all over the place. This is this is where the, the idea of scientific magic or basically hermeticism it, in, a, in a nutshell, it, it comes from these these ideals. Yes, uh, Go, DJ, but, don't just hold your hand up. Say something. No, so the, the reason I'm saying that is, or rather why I want to put into it, is they, they put a great line in the book regarding why such things occur. And this is not something that was created by vampires, of course. And that has to be noted for, for those listeners out there. But this is yep. literally because we're at a time now where science presents 
um, the what, but it never presents the why. So I could present to you electricity, but I'm not going to explain to you the, the, what's actually going to make it happen. First, people either are just woefully ignorant of having known it or they're kept in the dark about it. But it causes people to be like, well, why can't I learn? Why why don't I have the capability of doing something? And then that's when they go to the extreme of having to look for spirituality. And, that, and that's why the Tremere are riding this wave is because this is not a vampire-created phenomena. This is something humans did all on their own. And this is what pushes an extreme on both the left and the right um, to, to put people in their place. I didn't even think about it till just now. But you know, uh, you know what film uh, idealizes this concept? The Prestige. Mm. There we go. It's it's the same time frame, same era. It's still looking for these magical effects. They consult a wizard in the form of David Bowie, who shows them (laughs) (laughs) shows them how a Tesla coil works. Um, Like it's these ideas that where technology has become magic because it's it's a new level of understanding that's not in place for the common man. So these the people don't know where the ceiling is it's just it's, it's continually rising up and they're seeing wonderment and i would kind of contest that uh, they, they see science as magic they definitely know it's science they definitely know it is the fact is it's not common you gotta have an education to know why is what it comes down to and there's a place for these people that's important because you have to understand psychology psychology is huge right now and that's where the malkavians step in gone mm. are your oracles yep. gone are your prophetess or your your tarot card flipping mouse they may have a place in the occasional ouija board boardroom for fun but really it's about these lunatic asylums and the birth of psychology and studying that or studying the skull and everything else they're pioneering right along well the morals are pioneering and they're learning as well and they're trying to discover what does make us tick and that has a more of a profound effect on them than anything else and makes them very dangerous as they point out in society, like keep them on a short leash is what it recommends because this stuff is going on because they could feed with almost impunity where they're at. And because of it, how much are they learning and discovering? This is the, in my opinion, where you could start seeing demontation becoming a real thing. Like how did they learn it? Where did it come from? And in my mind, you study insanity enough and what goes on and begging for a reason and a why, but Hey, the beast adapts. Does it not? And that's yep. exactly what it's supposed to do. That spark of imagination of wonder, which is what science does. And think about it, Tordor too. Um, anyone, Tordor, Ventru, Bruja here, why they're able to go out and actually have an impact amongst the mortals greater than they ever have, gaslight. Now mortals are not afraid to go to a nightly, a nightly dinner held at Lord Monkey Muck's house. And Lord Monkey Muck has the best potato pancakes. And what, who knows? I don't know what's there. I like potato pancakes. <laughs> Lord Monkey Muck does. So that's what goes on there. And who knows? Who knows what he's doing there? But we get to have a spot of tea and everything else. Or as the book highlights, you get these artists. Real artists who go, pardon me, madam. I would adore if you would come and pose for me. In my special chateau over here for a moment. Do you like a a bit of the drink? The green fairy, maybe? Yeah, I I do. (laughs) Oh, typically I wouldn't, but my husband's gone in some business venture. I am quite bored. Can I bring your friend? No, madam, I'm afraid just you. I'll be there right after dusk. Okay, she shows up, stuff happens, and now she's half-naked posing in the bed. He's half-naked sketching her. And it's considered part of the times. Why? This is known as a dalliance. They were bored. Boredom. Everybody forgets the importance of boredom. If you imagine what it was like back... Oh, you were worried about what? Um, being sacked in the night, ate by animals, living in a stone hut, 
whatever other garbage she had to deal with in the long night, dark ages, and all that hot shit <laughs> that she had to do, it's gone. It's gone. Yep. Now we have yep. brick roads and carriages and horse riding. You know, well, I mean, Jack the Ripper. Who cares? Jack the Ripper's one. He's only hunting prostitutes. We're good. And that's and that's really what they're having fun doing. But boredom's a factor because when you start having an easier life, suddenly you don't have to do as much as a collective. And so all these interesting pursuits can take place in the birth of a renaissance of sorts. And that's that's what's interesting that they do to the clans here. And, um, you know, we won't get into the Tordor much more because really I felt the Tordor are doing Tordor things because they're Tordor. They don't really change much. That's it. I mean, you could almost say the Bruja do Bruja because they're Bruja. And, yep. uh, at, right? I felt that's a lot of the clans. I don't know if anybody got a different take of it. I think that uh, it's... Uh... I was about to say that, like, even though it's a lot of what we've already seen, what I do like from at least a design standpoint is they packed, and this is probably one of the first books that I could clearly remember in which they pack a, a whole lot more history for um, the clan inside of their clan section. You, you not only get, like, the spat of, like, this is their stereotype, this is what they probably came from, and this is your lack, your disciplines and weaknesses. This is, like, we'll give you that, but on top of that, we'll give you some story seeds for you to figure out what they're doing during that period in time. So at least from a design standpoint, it's nice to know it was just packaged in that section because at least it gives you something to read. I think it's um, correct. It, Pick one. Yeah. I don't believe you. Pick one. You uh, tell me. I read the same stuff. You tell me the amazement you had. I liked the Ravnor points when throwing kids under the bus. <laughs> Once again, for whatever reason, it's not that Ravnor are my favorite. I just happened to want to see something redeeming about them. The Ravnor, at least on the independent section, I could definitely say. Uh, was worth the read. The Giovanni as well were worth the read. Well, I guess once again the independent clans here. Yeah, might I was going to say something to say. You don't pick any of the seven prime. You're over oh, in no. the back corner picking the rarity, and I'm like, oh, that's hard. What's the entertaining ones, DJ? What's changed? The Ravno changed. The Giovanni. You can tell me the Bali are different too, DJ. <gasps> oh no. <laughs> I the, the thing the thing that I appreciated about the the main seven, right? The straightforward clans is the the domain section. Every every clan had a little bit of a description of the types of places where you find these people. And yeah, you've read that before, but not like called out as stereotypical in the same way everybody assumes that a Nosferatu lives in the sewers or whatever the location is. You you got to look at where during this time this specific clan might find its its niche among among mortals, and I appreciate that. Well, you gotta this book is a standalone book, right? These clans are presented here as though you had never seen them before. Because the idea was if you could run the Victorian Age game, you could set this book down in front of your players and they would just be good with that. The worst part about that is it does reference Vampire the Masquerade uh, core books like uh, it, it, in other parts of it, which is unfortunate because then why even bring the clans up other than they just try to give them the flavor for this particular era and and they do i think what you're finding is the victorian era is nothing if not conformity on the surface right we're not it's not the era of the individual at all in fact if you're somebody who goes against the society status quo your society turns against you because you're not towing the company line on the surface behind closed doors is where it gets interesting so the uh, the proper upright gentleman in Victorian era will always be proper upright and gentlemanly. However, the moment he gets home and sneaks out to do skullduggery and no good nick work, that's on him too. And it behooves him not to be caught. Because that would be bad form. It would definitely damage his reputation. And this is where the idea of reputations come in. 
but you can only have reputation only works when there's conformity to what the society has set up and established. See what I'm saying? In the modern vampire form that everybody here knows and loves and uses, that's where we're caring about your individual snowflakes, where people want to stand out. Because think about it. The, the, the 80s is a good era, 90s, you know, pretty much on up. Everybody's permitted to be whatever they choose to be. And you're applauded for being a strong individual, standing to your ideas, sticking it to the man, and doing all that other whatever it is that you feel you need to do. However, we forget that if everybody's doing it, we're still doing what? Same thing. We're yeah, still right. conforming. We're still conforming. The times have changed. We change with the times, but it's still the same. However, the different feel of Victorian era is where it starts. This is where it begins. And that's where you want to see that. That's where This is where people learn this very book, how to handle themselves in the Camarilla court. Ever. Right? A lot of times you're asked where, how, when, and where. This is it. You check this out, you read this book, you will know and understand, and you will be able to do it. Because it gives you the numbers easily. Now, but other than societal changes, what about the rest of it, guys? As we roll into uh, chapter two, it actually starts talking about the clans. I'm getting a feeling you didn't feel there was much there. Didn't is, is that right, or does somebody have something standing out? That you felt you saw. Um, well, we already kind of touched on the fact that it, it's, it's boilerplate for most clans, but I, I would recommend if I could recommend any part of this book, um, other than the stuff that's just like interesting as prose, the section on the independence here, um, is is real good. It's real good. You get to um, I've never seen Asimites depicted as scientists before, um, even though it, it makes sense in context, um. I had, like, in the back of my mind somewhere, I, I recall reading something in some book about the Setite um, Datia, uh, yep. the, the Indian offshoot of the clan. Um, you get a much clearer picture of how the Giovanni come to prominence, um, especially, you know, just having come out of the Dark Ages, right, where they first kind of get absorbed by the Cappadocians. In, in my mind, I was like, oh, uh, I guess they were rich and they, they figured it out over the course of centuries. This book in the in the independent section kind of lays it out in some cases down to specific cities and specific um characters that they have influence with and then like dj was saying before this this book completely upends and 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 paints a tapestry for you um for the ravno like as good or better than the ravno clan interesting anybody else yeah, it's, uh, that's the impression I got, too, that the Empire After Nightfall, once you read that section, it gives you more of a deep dive, a specific look at, like the, the classic template uh, DJ was talking about. That does rear its face, and you do see that. Yep. But that's pretty much the, the intensity of Chapter 2, pulling in those independents like Mike nicely outlined. And then we roll the Chapter 3 with characters, and this is you building characters in the Victorian age. Other than the, we know how to build a character, everybody does. Uh, anybody get a special insight feel that made it feel like you're building a Victorian character out of here? Or did yes. it feel like, okay. Uh, archetypes for natures and demeanors. That's where you saw your flavor for what is the Victorian era. That's when you have concepts like a futurist or a quester or explorer. It's all these uh, concepts for the golden age of discovery, uh, which is really what this is. Um, it goes on in like uh, in the next chapter to talk about the geography where it has people like literally questing around the world. <laughs> These are the types of people who go through that. When the sun never sets on the British Isles, it means the British can be anywhere. 
And if the British can be anywhere, then they can be experts in anything, which means a person has the ability to expand and grow their knowledge and, and be an expert in all kinds of crazy stuff. That's where you get these kinds of mentalities of these people that are these uh, post-Renaissance uh, intellectuals. Any yeah, thoughts, I, I, DJ? Sorry, Mike, go ahead. I think... Go ahead, oh, go ahead DJ, you got it. You got it, man. All right, well, then, in that case, um, the one thing I did catch, at least from a mechanical standpoint, is, like, they always go, like, hey, you know, these are your characters. You're going to be starting at 10th to 12th generation. You even have, like, paragraphs I knew you were going to bring this up. I can't help it, man. I got to bring it up as it is. It's like every book I open, it's like, oh, what are we going to see here? Dark Ages? 10 to 12th generation. All right. That's all right. Modern age, 10 to 13th generation. That sounds about all right. That makes sense. Victorian age, 10 to 12th generation as well. And so the question I ask, and I, I guess for point of conversation here is, you know, is it stylistically a, a mechanic situation or is it something inspired by the world that as you step into the world of vampire, you're asked to be playing characters of this particular type of generation because they always outline for you what your elders bring. So why wouldn't you start at that blood? Interesting, so, right? If I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, why is why is the 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 twelfth being the highest you can go, or the the typical highest for this time? Why is that? Yeah, the, the case? base standard. Yeah, across think, all times. I think it's that right. I think it's that way because in the modern there is that that sense of the impending Gehenna, and there is that uh, when the blood becomes too thin, right, associated with that. I think having uh, when I first read it, it was like, oh, this is at twelfth because oh yeah, they're not they're farther away from Gehenna. They're not they're not all up in arms about that at this point. That was my first thought when I read it, but uh, I don't know. Y'all might have a different opinion on it. We're not that far away um, from from the modern era. It, it's it's easy to think we are because technologically we're we're eras away but this is only a century yeah about right? this is like 1880 to 1890 or something like that yep it's a this is a very small time frame that this is stylized by and it is not far away when you compare the the length of time the generation background only allows you to go one level higher at dot five right start out uh, taking generation at, at 12 and then going up to seventh, right? It's the, it's the same basic idea. You're just a little bit younger. If you extrapolated that out for every single century, it would be ridiculous, right? Because by 1200 AD, we'd all be Methuselahs. So it's weird. So you guys feel that the gen matters? I think it matters, I for, for, I think it matters for reasons of theme. I think that even though we have 2,000 years of vampire history to play games with that books are written for. We're pinned between 7 and 14. 7 and 13, unless you take a merit. Um, because thematically, part of being a vampire character is having to deal with the weight of vampire society above you. It's interesting. I, I didn't think Jen pinned it down. I truly didn't think it mattered. I see them putting it in there to satisfy a mechanic implement of some type. I have no idea why the Dark Ages gives you this leeway. You can only go so far and then down here. I've always had this opinion. If the chart says and go to 4th gen, there should be a way to get to 4th gen. And they say, yeah, it's the Albury. I never agreed with it. And uh, it's because if you have somebody who wants to play that 4th gen, if you're anybody worth your salt, and you want to play a 4th gen with beginner points, I'm going to just let that simmer for a minute. <laughs> right so you're telling me the guy who goes 13th gen does the same thing 7-5 you can play the point no one's doing that you're declaring yourself snacky cake 
right? Or something horrible is going to happen. You can't handle the trouble of a fourth gen. So that's where I think they go. It was balanced, right? It was them saying, well, you can get a lot of trouble that way. But what if you're seventh? Well, ideally, you can still get into a lot of trouble. But remember what this is set up as. I got to have a mentor that's teaching me by the, by the numbers. My lineage matters. So whoever that is is going to be cracking down even harder. If they're freaking sixth gen and I'm, I'm seventh under them, oh, man, let the whip cracking begin. I better know my P's and Q's and go across there. But again, that's all up to the storyteller and the player. Do I agree with you guys to a point? Yeah, I think they're, I think all of it had a, had a relevant reflection to it. But there is no hard and fast rule as to why you start where you do, other than they seem to think it does to whatever mechanic they did to build it. But I've never seen it matter. Because uh, to me, a crappy 5th gen roleplayed is going to be the same as a crappy 13th gen roleplayed. And they're going to have the same problems and run to the same end if they're not careful, right? And it just depends on what story you want to tolerate and do it. And the theme here, though, as Mike pointed out, it is supposed to be to the young, sort of. Because with high society being there and that standard to maintain and them to back you, it's like this is a this is a time for the Ancilla neonates, and that's what they're focusing on. The stories and goals should be to look at these 10th gens and, and higher and see what they're willing to do to earn their place to move up. And give and given the ability, in other words, the leashes are off. The only leash you have now is social. And what do you do with it? And you're you're free to make your way. And that point is cleverly done. I would say when they tell you about the clan makeups. They're very young-minded clan makeups of what you can expect. Certainly not all Bruja are in some bar yelling up at night about what they're going to do to change the world. You know? It just depends on you and your story and that is all I'm saying. I don't know. I can see Cridy sitting there in the bar yelling about uh, <laughs> workers' rights. Probably. But that boring old goat. You can leave him where he is. <laughs> you know? You just let him go. Keep feeding him. Does he have the merit sure-footed? <laughs> <laughs> but, to, but to that end, that's uh, pretty much on characters in Chapter 3. And we roll right into Chapter 4, Chasing Sunset. Now, there's an exhaustive list of what's going on everywhere, but let's let's look at the, the high points of uh, what's kicking off. And uh, and this, we're going to start with Brenton. He's been a little quiet here. Haven't heard his dulcet tones in a little bit. Um, what's a favorite area that you picked out of here that you rather enjoyed reading about? Uh, there were there were two, actually. I, I enjoyed uh, actually reading about Cairo, uh, Egypt, and uh, as well as um, uh, Bombay. Well, talk to me about Cairo. Uh, both places. When I was going through this, I was like, ah, I've read so much about Europe right now. I want to focus on the places that are outside of that, right? And those were two that piqued my interest. And uh, in both of them, uh, they, they touch on some of, of course, uh, some of the stuff that's mentioned in, in the first chapter, which is like the, the spreading of civilization and like the, the hypocrisy with it, uh, within that. The, the, uh, the people that go out and uh, well, basically conquered and took over these places. Did so under uh, their belief that they're spreading uh, civilization. They're inviting people in them. They're not. They're not oppressing them. They're not taking over what's there. They are enlightening them and lifting them up. And once they're near our level, well, they can start paying us back for all the help they've given us, right? Uh, but uh, uh, Cairo uh, specifically was a uh, um, has one of my one of the characters I like reading about the most, Mukhtar Bay. The uh, the prince there, and uh, there's not um, you don't get a big description of vampiric society there, right? Because of course there's a by night book all about Cairo, 
but it does go in to talk about the uh, the current um, the changes that have happened there, such as um, the the more affluent neighborhoods or islands on the Nile uh, that have been turned into almost fortresses for both the wealthy and for kindred, as well as the uh, the the fierce rivalry between the the Sedites and the Asimites uh, that sets up a good backdrop for any uh, and a good seed for any plot that could be run there. That's weird. You point out one of the hypocrisies I felt out of this book. Oh yeah, and Mukhtar is a caitiff prince. If clan yeah, is, is so important, if that's so distinctive, if your social hierarchy and ranking is so important, and a hammer at home, how the hell does Mukhtar Bey hold down a city? Yeah, they they have like one sentence on that, um, and he is the exception to the rule that this book set forth. And it's that uh, the time and time again, despite uh, people bringing that up, having the same thought, his uh, his skills and actions have solidified him in his station. Which I wasn't I wasn't that satisfied with that answer from this book alone but those answers i believe are in cairo by night which is a good book if you're interested in that city if you were camarilla minded brentron you know the simple answer is well someone had to lead the mud people <laughs> right that's what it is and in my and, and, and in cairo when it comes to the Sedites, who are the mud people i'm referring to they're just worthless they live in the desert for god's sakes nobody I cares one of those noble savages he is um truly a paragon of his time if only he could be british he could never be here but it's good to know he's there. We send letters often. <laughs> right? That's that's how that society would see it. Like, of course, mm-hmm. stay in Cairo. That's where you're important. But don't you ever leave. You leave Cairo, <laughs> I promise you. You know, you stay put. Right? That's how I feel they've always looked at Mukhtar Bay. But it's interesting. You said the other one was... Uh, Bombay, Bombay, didn't you? Bombay, yeah. That uh, that city, uh, uh, again, similar to Cairo, has the uh, the British influence... Uh, taking over and starting to well build it up, quote unquote. But uh, it sets a it sets a backdrop of the British prince who uh, demands that you address him not as prince but by colonel. And uh, his his war with the uh, well the indigenous kindred there and them I wanna I wanna point out in this because they had a very unusual um, a very unusual setup there. The clan matters much less there. More, uh, what matters more is the the caste that you're uh, born into, or the caste that the clans are grouped into. Now, do you feel uh, that's a vampiric yeah. influence, or is that just the way the people are there? I, I believe that's more of a. I believe that is uh, again, uh, vampires reflecting the mortal society they inhabit in. Yeah, one thing I... that, sorry, uh, just uh, <laughs> one thing about that is they have, of course, different class. They have different, um, different hierarchies there right that the bottom are the quote-unquote untouchables uh what was odd about that is that the nosferatu are not in that cast however the toreador are so i guess that's one part in this book where the toreador are not being toreador <laughs> do they say why though they don't they say it's a mystery no one ever knows i wasn't wasn't happy with that but i did get a giggle out of it <laughs> uh, you can speculate right there's a lot of room for speculation as to why that might be but a uh, dj yeah, Give me two. Two of them. Um, I'm definitely going to go probably with the ones that I found as being Easter eggs. One of them is definitely uh, Warsaw, Poland. Um, there be some meats here, right? And in previous content that we've read, we could see why um, that dark forest is a big place for many Kolans in there. But what I brought away from it, especially outside of the like sociopolitical landscape that's kind of building in the background, is it also brings up uh, Yitzhak ben Abraham, who also happens to be there, and he's defending the Jewish ghetto. So he's he's in there, he's in the muck, and he's protecting his people. 
Um, and for all that time that we've seen him, especially in um, guide, Road to the, the High Clans or Guide to the High Clans um, in the DA system, to see him at this point actually doing something um, with all that fire that he had before was also pretty cool to see. Um, the other one that kind of brought worthy of note, once again, for Easter egg purposes, is Athens, Greece. There's a lot of things already surrounding Athens, Greece, as well as the islands um, that bring attention to it, but it's definitely led by a Malkavian prince um, who knows well enough to dress in the appropriate manner when out in public. <laughs> But definitely wanders around togas. What makes him a chagrin to most every other uh, kindred, especially, is that he ignores women. It, like <laughs> women, women yes. are just able. To, they can't even speak to him without having to use the ghoul as a bias, as like a, as a go between to be able to do that, and that infuriates it. And that's that's a story seed to be like this guy's going down at one point or another beneath uh, his notice. Beneath his notice, <laughs> but one character who who is female who, who is not beneath notice here is the easter egg which is uh, epicasta regatos who at this point is a toy or primogen but for those of you people who play vampire the eternal struggle um in the card game she's prince of new york so it's interesting to see her at this moment in time you know based on what we've seen to as an easter egg being dropped there so i thought that was pretty cool uh, but what Back about uh, the prince of athens king of misogyny doesn't seem that he makes it to a card does it he does not uh, i guess that's very telling about his future right <laughs> No, no. Nick, did you have one? I did. Um, I well, I had a handful, but um, uh, Mike, you got any? So I know what not to take. Um, I got one and a half. I got Venice and a particular Malkavian that struck my well, interest. I'll take section. all mine then. All right. <laughs> so here's the thing, Bob. Um, the one thing to take note of this is that, uh, like, the feel you get from this is that England is the center of the known world at this point. It mm-hmm. kind of is, right? So uh, the Victorian era is England. England is the Victorian era. These are just places that if for some imaginable reason you would go there, and I can't imagine why, this is what you might might get, you know. Please send your chilled. Um, anyways, <laughs> what you end up with... a Paris. Um, we uh, we find that there's nothing strange going on in the homeland of the Toreador. Toreador are being Toreador. Uh, but what we do discover is the uh, is the new Prince Vion, um has a secret lover. And from what I hear, it's a it's a shapeshifter, a Zemis, right? We caught we caught her sculpting clay, and you know what? I even heard the name Sasha. <laughs> And, so, and then the uh, and then the person goes uh, goes along to say something like, "If word of this ever got out," and I was like, "Do you know Paris at all? If word ever got out, everybody already I knows mean, this. Does it have to be Vicos? <laughs> we don't know who it is. Bob. I mean, Sasha's pretty common. I mean, Zemis. Yeah, come on. It's always Vicos. Yeah. It's come always right. Vicos. <laughs> what I loved was the Scandinavian region. It's like uh, they keep talking about how there's nobody there. There's nobody there. We keep going there, and, and there's like a, a person here and a person there and maybe someone over here. But for the most part, there's almost no vampires. Why? Because it's hard being undead and gifted in the land of the get. <laughs> <laughs> they say it specifically. Get out there, be getting it. <laughs> be getting what I what I do like is uh, they bring up in Istanbul, right? Not Constantinople, and, and not Constantinople. And what I do like about Istanbul is they don't mention Michael at all. 
or the Draken or anything that was Constantinople. Welcome to the new Istanbul. No longer are we living in the old days. We are now the the great city that we are. It is interesting about Istanbul, though. Prince Mustafa is a very intriguing character to be sitting there after so long, I felt. And uh, I'm only going to go so far because I think I think the reason why it's set up like that is for folks to dig into what a ca- events happened there and see why it ends up being what it is. Which he's still influenced by Torador, right? And so it's like, is it is it Echoes of Michael? Could it be? And then, you know, you think of the, the Dark Ages update... Where they have in there, you know, you had the new, uh, whatchamacallit, the Nephilim. Alonso. Oh, gotcha. Yep. All that, that cult that developed, and it's like, hmm, hmm. Now, I know this book came out way before that, but the point is, I wonder if seeds were attached. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it was already laid the foundation up. Hey, we can, never, we can never underestimate what's going to happen between Dawkins or Achille. <laughs> and we both know that they're familiar with each other's work. Like high karate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, swing at it, Mike. What do you got for me? Um, I not a lot. So there's a, a specific character in Brussels, um, the Malkavian, uh, Ludmilla Vanderholst. Mm-hmm. I think. Yep. That'd be yep. It. Yep. Who is this? And where did she go? Where did she? So the section heavily implies that she's got the entire city under some kind of mysterious thrall, right? Related to her immense age and and, uh-huh. and power and background but i've i've read a lot of books and i've never heard of her but i'm i'm very curious like i'm going to pull up the wiki and drag in uh whatever sources i can find and and, and kind of backtrace it right um but the the sidebar on her I, it's it's still stuck in the front of my mind um and then venice I know I'm, I'm coming back to the Giovanni well again, man. When our narrator goes to Venice and he speaks to a spirit and it's like, hey, you're new here. And he's like, yes, yes, I am. And there, there's like, there's this sensation that two spirits are just kind of having a conversation. And then the narrator calls out that he notices the other has not said a word about the city that they're actually in. And then that section wraps up and there's this description of how as night falls, all of the shades from the area, as far as they can see, start to descend on what must be the haven of the local clan. It was... I wanted to see that episode of television or watch that movie. That, that, that was great. It was great. <laughs> it was just... It was It was great. It was one of those moments in this book that I really... Now I wonder, Ludmilla's like eating at me. Like, who is that, right? Like, out of nowhere, who is this Methuselah? She's Because she's got to be. How does she have this whole city on lock by herself? They say that Sabat can come and go. The peace is not Mm -hmm. broken. The Camarilla is good. Everybody's good. There's a powerful character in the Encyclopedia of Empirica I read a long time ago. For some reason, it's sticking out of my head. I want to say I'm writing this, but tentatively, I'm throwing it out there. Ludmilla might be the one who was the master thaumaturge who was going through the numbers. Like, I forget what she would think she was trying to discover all the source of all thaumaturgy or whatever. It was a bit of a bother. And so it was in a region and kind of held it down and held, and choked it and then mysteriously went her own way. And it was, it was highlighted there. I could be wrong. 
Might be, but uh, it's 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 a definitely a familiar name. Was it not a V-Test card as well, DJ? It probably was. I, no, actually, I don't think it was because I, I tried looking for a V-Test card because I thought that that name sounds familiar, and I want to say it probably is, but I just wasn't able to dig anything up. What it is, though, is it's an amazing story seed, which means like because oh, yeah. you were inspired to look at it, that means you either run that story or you get yourself a storyteller who can because yeah. that, that location is amazing um, because there's just peace and everyone knows better. Right, and when you know everyone knows better, it, it ain't about the print. It's about something underneath that uh, that does a lot more damage. <laughs> and it's a that different flavor. Me. Go ahead, Nick. go ahead. That, that reminds me, Bob. I, I I thoroughly read the Ireland section twice. <laughs> I was looking for our boy Donald O'Connor. Still not Prince of Dublin. We don't know where he is, and we don't know when he comes back, but we know at some point, because the Vitesse card, he is going to be Prince of Dublin. <laughs> First off, we know because he's quoted in a V5 book. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is quoted in the uh, in the Camarilla book, the V5 Cam book. So, <laughs> what a jerk. Bruja, Prince of Dublin. But no, I, was, uh, I was just going to say part of the – so on the one hand, this whole chapter to me – was kind of a dry read, like, why didn't you just give me some bolded text and let me know what was going on in these cities and which characters were important and move on. But at the same time, every stop on the narrator's trip gave me a very, very clear, vivid picture of how I would tell a story in that location. Um, That's the idea. Yeah, and Venice, Venice, to me, more so than the others, just because of the visuals. Um, but Madrid was good. Lisbon was good. And it was, how do I say this? I appreciated that it did not all seem like one and the same, even though the point is to put it in the setting. It, it, every city had its own individual character. I do agree with that, but I'm trying to, what I'm chewing on is the t- aspect of a dry read. I jokingly say dry read, uh, like we did the last podcast release, did it to get the exact rise out of the exact person we meant it for. And it was, it was beautiful. But it's very hard to do sort of like a travel book version of what goes on in a city, wouldn't you agree? For yeah. vampires? Like, you know, we're, we're mm-hmm. touring here, and let me tell you about Brussels. Mm-hmm. If they just give you, like, you know, stat blocks and throw it down, you're going to you're gonna hate it. You're going to hate it, because yeah. that's not a value. You can do stat blocks on your own if they could just tell you what's going on. And so they tell you what's going on. To that end, I would say it's a rough to read if you don't have an area of influence. You want to be, you know, if you're already going there going, I'm running a game about Paris, but what's all this other shenanigans? Well, yep. who cares? Read about Paris. That's what you're there to do. That's that's how you should yep. do it. Yep. Uh, so or it's definitely for a character content. background story. Great places in there as well. For sure. Get for an sure. idea for where you come from. To that end, and since we know that's that entire chapter, we'll leave that where it is. But what about chapter four? You know, we're looking at a lot in here uh, related to chapter geography. Certain? Sh- sh- no, no, no. I'm meaning the uh, chapter five. You're right. Um, when you're looking into chapter five. And you're kind of digging deep, trying to figure out what's worthwhile. Um, what do you feel about it? Did the storytelling tips here help you? Like, I'm going to go first. It did help me in envisioning Victorian-style gaming uh, of what you might do in here, especially the concept of the evil twin. Yep. What did you guys think? I think this is single-handedly the best storytelling section I've seen in a book like this. This is a very localized, very thematic and mood-heavy setting, right? It's not just a setting book, as uh, as Mr. Achille tells us at the end of the book um, in his afterward. But this, without a question, 
gives you every tool you need to make a Victorian age story, whether it's vampire or not. It, it literally breaks down the, the entire genre of the, uh, of the Victorian age, the, the themes that go throughout them, uh, different styles have been put in place, where they have been put in place. So you can reference that book to go back to it later and, and see how they did it. And, uh, and to me, it was, it was astonishing. Like if you don't get inspired in this section, you're just not paying attention. I'd agree. I think that section is what this book is about, truly. And if you're, if you're serious about running a game, storytelling it, you need to hit this section. Um, definitely pick up this book, period, if you're going to do anything Victorian Age. But uh, Chapter 5 is going to be your blueprint for where ideas will flow from and where you're going to get how to use this book. I know what you're thinking, a bit out of order. I will, I will say that much. I feel that should have come way sooner to kind of help out. But at the same time, as Nick said, it's supposed to be a standalone. And so they built it to kind of get you hooked if you'd never seen a vampire book and maybe it's your first time storytelling or you didn't want to run the same old modern game that other people have. That's what this is designed to do. And so I think the assumption is you already know how to storytell and this is to put spice on that storytelling. Hence why it might have been at the end. Just curious as to, as to why it's there. Um, but other than that, I do feel that is that section 100%. Unless, now's your time if you're contradicting gentlemen. The, the section that also carries the alternative generation rules, the one nugget that I carried away from it is there's one port where you could just start taking um, multiple um, derangements to kind of stave off and keep yourself at humanity. We've seen that as well future down in uh, Chronicles of Darkness. We've seen that in Requiem where you could start taking banes to kind of help stave yourself off. So I feel like that's one mechanic that just got, they, they took a look and they ported it over and it made sense for what it was. And especially because they're giving you alternatives um, into playing your game, right? So once again, giving you that option, I thought I think that was an interesting nugget. I, I don't even think it's interesting. I want to. I want to tell you what that is. It's good for Victorian. I don't think it should ever move me on that. The flavor. I, I agree. The flavor for Victorian is madness, and that's why they put it there, and that's why it's in this book. And you can't cross cross platform that because it's a different system. When it goes into yeah. Requiem, I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer that. I'm not taking away from your idea. I think it's valid. Of you course. had your point, and of course, it's what is there. But what I'm seeing is is that people struggle with the basic degeneration rules which are loose. They're designed not to hold you up in game. They're designed not to get you to focus on a mechanic. It says you cannot have a vampire run around and do all these bad works and not hit them with the conscience they're supposed to be role-playing, right? Or the consequence of impersonal horror. That's what it's for. Do it too much and you make it too mechanical, they're not going to care. Or they'll just keep spending XP in the conscience, raising it to five, but never playing that five. Just so they can roll (laughs) dice and do whatever they want, right? That's what it does. Here it says, you know, the diff is 9. But why is the diff 9? It's typically 8. Well, it's 9 because it's harder to maintain status quo P's and Q's when you're walking around Victorian society. So, if I do violate my hierarchy of sins, it's even harder to maintain myself without madness setting in. And why do they want madness setting in? Sort of the theme of the Victorian age. Yep. Yeah, obsession, uh, duality, all kinds of crazy things that are constantly being thrown throughout. What I, the part of this that it really harps on, and, and you got to get it as a theme in this book, is the prim and proper nature of the Victorian age persona, right? Not just, not just vampire, not just mortal, but entire society, right? It's the idea. They don't talk about things they don't like the idea of, right? The, the idea of, of everything that's inappropriate doesn't exist. 
right? Period. You can just imagine like a, like a neonate comes in to his sire and says, I just heard of this thing about the Sabbat. What is the Sabbat? And he just goes, we don't talk about that. And it's like, no, but I heard the really bad Sabbat. He's like, we're done with this conversation. It's over. I never want to hear about it again. And that's, good day, all, that's all they ever hear about the Sabbat. Period, right? Other than like hushed whispers with a lover and where they sit down in the corner and they go, oh my God, the Sabbat will come and eat you. Oh no, they won't. Oh God. <laughs> you know, it, that's, the, that's the kind of the theme that goes here. The reason that that plays into this degeneration method is because you are checked constantly at a higher difficulty, but everything you're expected to uphold a very, very, very rigid standard and comportment. Uh, and, and if you go beyond that, it, uh, it, it's, you're supposed to be checked on it immediately. I think the degeneration rules in this are very tough. I think that's why they give you the option to throw in uh, a couple of extra derangements or maybe the rest of the book in derangements if, if you keep on doing this kind of stuff to both add stylized to your character and to, to stop your, well, your, your downfall into uh, what is an extremely flawed character. And I agree. And here's why, DJ. I just want you to consider, um, I, like your point, I thought about it when I read this section too. It gives players more of a chance to have an out instead of a loss of humanity. Right? I would have lost humanity so I'd take a derangement. Well, now I'm thinking of my Malkavian players. Or for someone who actually took a derangement that did the research to have it. It's a world of difference when your character was built to have this derangement, ready to play it, and the history behind it. And that they're now they're actively playing. It's another one where you give a player whose concept was a near-duel in Elysium, who is in a situation where he, he or she needs to feed. And they leave the feed in their herd, and it goes bad. And they end up exsanguinating someone in the guilt from it. And instead of a loss of humanity or a conscience check they could have made, pass or fail type thing, now it's they don't get to roleplay that loss and kind of savor that loss like it's supposed to be meant, right? I killed someone. Half the fun of the degeneration check is being able to roleplay through your character's perspective what that change is. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. So, but if instead I tell that person, no, no, keep it and gain a derangement instead. And I'm like, that derangement is sanguinary animism. Now you're guilt-ridden with what goes on. You can almost see the eyes dim in a player who built a concept like that because you risk damaging that concept. Because you just threw something at them, they don't have the confidence to play. And I see that being built up. Versus, if it's a Victorian game, and we know it's high to do, and it's built in as an alternate system for it, and we agreed to do it, then I would have built the character prepared to take additional derangement hits or knowing that that's coming. And it's a, it's a different ball of wax to me than what it has. But the feel is just to give you madness. Now, what I'm curious about is, you mentioned Requiem. What does Requiem do instead? Requiem uh, adds Banes instead. These are not like derangements that we're accustomed to in V20. These are additional like supernatural weaknesses, to put it in, uh, in that term, right? Um, such as like uh, being uh, whenever you hear the ringing of bells, you have to flee from it. Whenever you come across someone that is actually pure, right? Someone who is actually like a good person, that purity is so anathema to what you are at this point, you flee. And these banes occur because they are, as you lose humanity, you are damaging your soul pretty much. And these banes are more like scar tissue that's built up over the wounds. What it sounds to me is it's more inhumane. Exactly. Right? I might it get does. a touch of frost. Instead of getting black veins in the skin. And that's easily shown. Or I may have a, uh, I don't know, I lost my reflection. As it's part of it in there because of what I did. Now we're talking. I agree with that. 
instead of losing Mandy, get a Bane. That's awesome. That's an mm. alternate way to do it. That's okay, because that's a Bane. But definitely, you're not you're not getting schizophrenia, right? Right. You're not. You True. see what I'm saying? That difference. It's it's more something tangible that would be fun for a player to get an experience versus a saddled difficulty out of nowhere. Is uh, is my thing. Or where, as Nick pointed out, that would fit for a Victorian setting. You know, it's sort of uh, it tightens the screws. You should have been good, kid. Because now we might have to take it to the asylum with with Doctor Netchurch or whoever and sit down on the couch. Tell me what bothers you today. And by the way, hold this silver knife. I'm going to slowly heat it over time. Why? I hear it cures. I don't know. Mumfoot. I don't know what Mumfoot <laughs> is, but neither does he. And he's going to cure it. Though. Well, do you have Mumfoot and sons? Perhaps, I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I see so, what you did there. But let's roll through. Let's roll through. Chapter six antagonist is the last one. Here I want to point something out. They do point out the aspect of a Jack the Ripper scenario in a Victorian Victorian era. And and the style mm-hmm. that you could bring into it. And the fun of it. I like that idea, but my favorite is the evil twin. I can't get away from it. Every time I read about the evil twin, I think nothing would be more fun than having that player who didn't know there was a there was another one of them running around who maybe was ghouled instead of made a vampire who's making an impression during the day that you have to uphold at night. I, I thought that was awesome. You, you remember when we did that with a player, right? Which Basically, one? Basically, uh, <clears throat> our, our fella, one of the Anarchs, ended up uh, escaping from a Sabbat yeah, raid. Yeah, 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 but yeah, his, uh, yeah. his, uh, his uh, Anarch gang brother ended up getting uh, caught and then converted into the Sabat and then started chasing after him as this evil twin type thing. Oh, it was great. It's it's a superior concept, but when you hold it to the Victorian style, it's not so direct. It's like you, there'd be evidence where you think you, you would be questioning your sanity. Like waking up and someone, did, did, did you ruffle your clothes? You thought you had your suit iron and pressed and it was ready for the next day. Now it's tossed everywhere. Or you're leaving little notes to yourself in your handwriting. Do you think it was wise to speak to that primogen openly? I, what are you talking about? And then someone later on goes, you dirty rat, you know what you said. And then you have to live up to this and it becomes this mystery. Remember, it's a big part of it, but it should be a grand old chase with this antagonist to figure out who it is. That could be a lot of fun for a coterie or for a personal horror experience for that character. That's why I like it. And it's unique. It wasn't just like, you know, Ah, this guy's a werewolf, and he'll rawr, and chew your face off unless you have a dental bone in your pocket for dogs. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of dumbing it down, but you know what I mean. They could get pretty smash mouth when the antagonist is open and shut. But that was a unique one to me. Did you guys have a favorite? Uh, the old ST cannonball was kind of funny. I had a laugh. <laughs> the old ST cannonball. Hit me with it. <laughs> the meddler in forces he cannot understand. Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> There's a wonderfully evocative picture of a man in a top hat with nice little uh, 19th century glasses. Um, and I even like the paragraph and a half explanation of, of where he comes from and how you get a short, quick, to the point idea of why he might be strange. And then you get to his stats. <laughs> and it's what is what happened here? He's, he's strength five, dex four, stam five. He's also thaumaturgy four, and potence three, and all specs four, and dominate two, and forty-two four. He's he's apparently 
Brolic. some thrall of something that also has all of the vampire things, but appears to, I don't I, I it warmed my belly. It warmed my belly. You went right into the stats on it too. <laughs> like it's just so like we've we've all seen high numbers, right? Everybody, you know, somebody's good at something. But all these things and all these things next to each other inside a guy who we know why he's strange but not we don't get an explanation you know what i'm trying to say am i making sense at all i feel like i'm ranting am i ranting well, well first off he's a he's a high wizard right is that not the point he's like a magician of a type and, and so that's that's why he's there in the book so we we kind of know why he's strange if you're if you're meddling in the forces you cannot understand what are we talking about? You're the dude who Klaatu, Verata, Nikto. You should not have done that. <laughs> you should not have done that, and yep. you did it, and and it's now coming. And then, but this dude would go, and so I have. Deal with it, peasants. And he teleports away. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's what I give the read in this guy. Like he does very dangerous things he shouldn't do. And it's everybody running after him to get him to stop. That's okay. That's the start of every Call of Cthulhu game. Right, you, right, you exactly. make him sound like a Lovecraftian in like jackass. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I would use this guy, but I would have to think of like a comedy script to go along with it. Just make him Johnny. <laughs> well, what stuck out for me was the secret societies, which I don't think is is too far away from from what what stuck out with you either. Um, I like the idea. That you have these uh, these gentlemen's clubs that dabble into things that out of boredom that they really shouldn't be playing with, like <laughs> man, any Bali in this time zone, they are just raking them in like you wouldn't believe. You know, you can imagine the level of, of, of cultists that that would come in any entrepreneuring setite uh, would, uh, would 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 see in this area. But there's two ways you can go about these secret societies. You can make them capable or incapable, right? A capable one is dangerous, right? Because they're gonna they're gonna call on <laughs> something they shouldn't be messing with. They, but the incapable ones are just hilarious, right? It's an opportunity for you to be like, oh, we found this evil cult. They go down there, and these guys are like uh, playing checkers with like demon knuckle bones or whatever it is, and nothing's going on, right? <laughs> like they keep on thinking they're summoning these spells, but really nothing at all is happening. And they're all they've all got each other convinced. And then later we're gonna put on the masks and have the orgy, but don't <laughs> tell anyone about that. No, dear, no. You know, the orgy was necessary, my dear. I was. Calling them the cosmos. <laughs> first of all, uh, the first rule of summoning club is we don't talk about summoning club. <laughs> <laughs> well, normally that type of buggery doesn't happen, but it called in ritual. As Reginald, he agreed. It's done, done. And we move on. And we don't really know yep. why or how. Just as it is. I could get behind that. <laughs> that's sort of funny to me. I anyway, that's... Uh... <laughs> anyway, um, so... <laughs> Without that, this does bring up to light uh, fairies, ghosts, and all that fun stuff. The usual is in here. And uh, kind of brings them to the fore of what you could use them for. book does talk about them a little bit, too. And, and how one might use it. But I would get used to the ghosts. I really feel a good Victorian game should have a healthy amount of haunted things. Because a lot of people... Ouija was in, man. Talking to the dead was a thing. And, and the uh, seance around the table with a little uh, kerosene lamp. And everybody holding hands. And somebody tapping their foot on the ground and... 
I can noise. I, I get the pictures. Yeah. Ask grandfather where the inheritance was buried. <laughs> sure thing. He says I have to sacrifice six goats and mother, and he'll tell us. Just to find out that the dirty old bastard was lying the whole time about how wealthy he was. <laughs> I got you, but I fed you too. Enjoy the goats. <laughs> it's done. Uh, but I would say overall, this is an enjoyable book. Uh, definitely for the time period it's in, especially if you're going to run it through. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I, I own it. I own it in hard copy and at the PDF, so I'm already hooked on what it is. But what about you? In fact, in particular, Brentron. Did we convince you? Brentrons are quick flashing in a hurry, as I like to refer to them. High speed, <laughs> low drag, right? He's in. It's either he's all about the book or he's done gone, and that's it. But you had a chance to chew on this. What did you think of it? Uh, I actually I actually enjoyed this book a bit, and for, for one big reason that I don't actually think we've talked about yet, and I think needs to be. This this book is set during the time of, well, Dracula's novel, right? All of those novels that we talked about before, this was the time frame that this came out in. Like, this is that setting harkens back to that. Um, I do, I, I love watching that movie with uh, Gary Oldman in it, and like, I, just just from that, the, the, the feeling I get, I thought reading through the first chapter, like visualizing in the prelude, I could see these people walking down a fog-choked cobblestone street. And like I, I love the, the mood that this book put out. So for this one, I would recommend it. All right. All right. Every man, Mike. And I'm asking you, because you didn't get much of what you like in this book at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and we find out in the afterward that that was on purpose. Um, so I felt I felt attacked. Eighteen years after I felt attacked. Um, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, so for a person like me, whose only familiarity with this era is like dusty history book in college and a couple films I like, I would highly, highly recommend this book. Um, for somebody who's already a fan, like you already read Oscar Wilde. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, right? Like you, you're already familiar with this flowery kind of trumped up talk. It doesn't give you anything that a movie wouldn't give you. Um, that's set in the period, so I think it's it's targeted, but it absolutely destroys the target audience. If that makes sense, it's great. I can get behind it again. Yeah, I, I see you. I see you. Um, that's good. It's pretty fair. So you didn't have your crunch like you enjoy. Um, Nick, where do you get your viewpoint? Spare me. Uh, DJ, DJ, you replied the most. Um, what I did, I already know Nick liked it. He's talked eloquently here, and and that's why I'm just like, okay, I'm looking at DJ here. DJ, what about you? Well, but you'd uh, be wrong. You'd be wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> you enjoy so, this book, Nick? For someone uh, who spent the last seventy minutes jaw jacket on it, was was, was uh, what, what didn't you like about it? I like. Uh, I, I like to say I, I despise every time I, uh, I I see a Tremere character that comes complete with a top hat, some uh, some tinted glasses, and a cane and a cape behind them. See, I knew you could do this. That doesn't say you don't like the book. Where would? But for, um, don't please, sir, don't interrupt me. I said good day. <laughs> but in the middle of the, uh, this is obviously that that place where that kind of stuff belongs, right? The horror thematics in this book are the ones I enjoy more than any of them. Um, but would I run a campaign here? I, 
That's exactly. I would Ooh, only did, get hold this. Up, hold up. Time out. Time out. Time out. I need to remind you what this is. This is a review. This is a review. Yeah. Did this book promise that Nick is going to run a campaign? Hell no, this book didn't make that promise. <laughs> Did this I, book say it's the Victorian age? I believe that's the whole goddamn title of the book. I believe the whole title is the Victorian age. Is this if Victorian? I... DJ, I'm going to ask you. Is this a Victorian age book God. for vampires? <laughs> say that again, Bob. I'm sorry. Is this the Victorian age book for vampire? It is. It, it is. is. It, that's right. That's right. That's what I'm it saying, is. Nick. And to add to it, to, to drill down on it, what I'll say is this, right? I bought this book when it first came out back in 2002. When I read it, I was confused. I was young. I didn't understand. Reading this book again gave me an appreciation for it. And one thing I missed when I was younger, and I, and I regret it now, and reading it now just made me appreciate it more, was definitely the afterword written by Justin Achille. It, it, as you read the book, sometimes you wonder why the design was made in the way that it was. The art is beautiful. But, uh, Bravo to all the interior uh, artists there. Specifically, it reminds me of 2002 when I was younger. It's Christopher Shy's artwork, Andy Travel's artwork as well is very prominent in here that picked my eye. But that afterward is everything because if you're walking into it, and like Mike said, you don't know what you're looking at and you're looking for crunch. That I almost feel that should have been at the front of the book because then it would have given you expectation. But when you get to it, it's bittersweet because for all the questions that I had, he answered it and it, it nailed in the mood and he did everything he was supposed to do, which is talk about the mood of the book. Does it expose everything we're talking about? Like Bob was saying, yes, a hundred percent. And I recommend it for that. Now, and that's and that's all we care about. Is did it hit it, its objective? Uh-huh, that was the point. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That is a review. Just saying. Appreciate it, Nick. No, Nick. I agree. It, it did hit its objective. Okay. And if I was to run a vamp, uh, a Victorian age game, this would be a required purchase. <laughs> Is, you see him stretching? I saw him. St- well done, Nick. Well done. Thank you for this, babe. I understand where you're at. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, tune in next time when we're going to be doing the Victorian Age Companion and see what insights we have there to expand upon the Victorian Age Nick. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.